Welcome, guys, to the Cup of Nurses podcast with your hosts, Peter Fendero and myself, Matt Slarchik. This is a podcast where we tackle hot nursing topics and current health news, one conversation at a time. Thank you guys for subscribing, liking, sharing. We are growing as we speak, and we really appreciate that. We can't do anything without you guys. So love and appreciation. And today we have a special guest that Peter is going to introduce. Yes, guys. We'd like to welcome Lindsay Kimmel. So Lindsay was diagnosed with cancer of the salivary glands at age 31, a month before her wedding. She's a labor and delivery nurse, a yogi, a dog mom, and lover of the mountains. During her personal journey, she built resilience and learned to appreciate life a little bit more. Lindsay is here today with us to share her story about health, wellness, nursing, and how she built up her resilience. How's it going, Lindsay? How are you today? Good. I'm so happy to be here. So give us a little background of who you are, what you do, and then mm -hmm. we'll go into the topic of cancer and everything else that's up in the air. Perfect. Um, so I'm Lindsay. I'm 33 now, live in San Francisco with my husband and my black dog. Um, I am a labor and delivery nurse. I was diagnosed um, with cancer two years ago now. Um, and I, I'm really here and the conversation that I want to have is um, a, a conversation about healthcare, about what it means to be your own health advocate. I kind of want to share my story about where I was before and how I got to the place that I am in now. Um, I think I can fill in some of the blanks on my background as we go, but that's generally who I am. Okay. What kind of, what kind of dog do you have? Black Lab. A Black Lab. Yeah. What name? His name is Baco. B-A-H-C-O. Baco. That's cool. I wish I had a dog. Yeah. I have a dog. But they have a, they have a little oh. dog. If I ever get a dog, I want a big dog. Yeah, yeah. Yes. like a like yeah. a Doberman Pinscher kind of dog, like that kind of dog. Scary dog, scary yeah. dog. Like the bark makes you run away. Exactly, yeah. Because I'm only only five eight and a half, you know. But, you know, I I gotta you know buy a bigger dog to protect me if anything were were to happen, <laughs> especially with these riots in Chicago. You know, you never know. Yes, yes, that's what you need outside Louis Vuitton. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a conceal and carry. Yeah. That, that I heard Peter likes the smaller guns, so maybe he's gonna have like a little ankle ankle gun that's gonna have wrapped up on your heel, man. It's, it's more discreet, you know. Yeah. The dog can carry it. You can give the dog a little carrier. He's, he's even, even better. He can carry my back up on his little like his little paw or mm -hmm. something. Yes. Yes. I think so, that's a new that's a new invention. You yeah. So Lindsay, I think you're our first labor and delivery nurse on here, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, right? you are. So how is labor and del delivery? I know we know you did nights and and days. Like what are yeah. what are like the nurse responsibilities for you as like a labor and delivery nurse? I feel like L&D is such a specific job. I remember going through rotations in nursing school and being like, peds, no, you know, ER, no, telly, no. I got to L&D and I was like, this is such a crazy combination of like triage, OR, women's health, babies, birth. Um, and you had some emergency in there. I, just felt like it was everything that I wanted. I'm also totally good with vaginas and, you know, bodily fluids. It's one of the bloodiest floors for sure. Um, and I loved the nurses. I love the autonomy. Um, a lot of it, especially in hospitals, if there's not midwives is really you going through the whole labor with the patient. Um, and the nurse, you know, wants you to come in when the baby's like crowning heads that far out just to catch a baby 
and sew them up and walk out. Um, so you end up getting really attached to your patients. Um, you have to be okay with things kind of organically happening. You have to, there's a loss of control because it's so individual. You can kind of think it's going to go one way and you can be rolling to the back for an emergency C-section. Um, and you have to be good with people going through a lot of pain and kind of supporting them through that. Um, and it's babies. I mean, my God, it's the best of all worlds for me. But I also had friends in my cohort in nursing school who went through and were like, I can't believe that you are going to, you're considering L&D. Like that's disgusting. I could never. Um, so I think it really is like a particular field. And it feels like the people that went into it knew they really wanted to be in it. Um, so that's kind of my take on L&D. Um, I wouldn't have known that I had really liked it until that rotation either. Um, cause I don't have kids myself, but it was a perfect fit for me for sure. I, I like how you mentioned dealing with pain, right? Cause I think that's like the one thing that I always feel guilty as a nurse because we can't do anything with this pain, you know, and we see patients that are not giving birth, but they're in severe pain. And mm -hmm. sometimes we can't give the right pain medication or we have to say no or try something else. And that's like this burden always. And with like, you know, labor and delivery, you can't do either, you know, what's like the best way to cope or what do you tell like your, your moms to, you know, to how to, how to deal with the pain? Well, I also did like doula training before, which is a lot of breath work. Uh, you, it's a lot of incorporating other positions, movements, kind of mentality going into it. There is a certain amount of mindfulness, but I think the main thing for me was learning to separate myself from my patients, like kind of walking into the room and being like, okay, this is me. This is them. Like, unless I am really grounded and in myself, I cannot be supporting them in the amount of pain that they're in. And I think I got really good at being there and being an advocate and being supportive and also allowing them to go through their process, whatever that was going to look like, um, and not leaving them in the middle of it. Um, so it was a lot of like bearing witness to what they were going through. But it's incorporating other other modalities like the breath work, like massage, like, you know, did a lot of essential oils, um, just other things that you can bring in to the room. Basically, whatever there was available, I tried it. Um, but it's mainly just being okay with their pain, too. Like for a, a critically ill uh, ill mom, like labor and delivery, is it just mm -hmm. like what are some, some signs? I'm, I'm kind of curious because when I did my labor and delivery rotation, like in my clinicals, mm -hmm. I didn't see very much. Like we, I didn't see a lot of vaginal births mm -hmm. because mainly because we were in like a predominantly middle Eastern cultured hospital where uh -huh. women, didn't, women didn't really want like a male nurse coming to look at them. So I looked at a lot of C-sections, but what are some of like the telltale signs that a labor isn't, isn't, isn't going well? Um, a lot of it is you're monitoring the baby all of the mm -hmm. time. So there's a fetal heart rate monitor that you're looking at and you're watching the baby's heart rate and you're seeing how they respond to labor. So a lot of it is, is watching what they do during contractions when they go into active labor, how the baby looks. Um, and a lot of it is also progression of labor. If the mom is not progressing, if she's not actually dilating and going into active labor, 
that can be an issue. Um, a lot of it is infection related. If your water is already broken, um, you just can't have, you know, it's, it's, it's introducing bacteria into the uterus, um, pretty quickly. So, um, a lot of it is based on monitoring and just seeing the baby. If the baby can tolerate that, it's just an incredible amount of stress on the baby. So if they can tolerate whatever is happening in labor, that's great. But the main thing we're watching is the baby. Obviously bleeding is a big thing, but that's usually, you know, postpartum hemorrhaging, um, which is after the placenta comes out. And if it's the, you know, the uterus is not clamping down and you can hemorrhage. I mean, that's, that is another major thing that happens, but it's usually the baby is our best indicator. Yeah. And you had the benefit of working both nights and days. How is mm -hmm. like the cold, how's the culture different? Because a lot of nurses say that days are, are busier. You know, there's nights of nurses doing like TikTok videos that are getting some backlash for why they make making videos co compared to, you know, taking care of their patients. Like there, there's always some, there's always some, some beef going on days and nights. Like how is it different for you or how is it different for labor and delivery? Um, I think, you know, uh, well, I don't know. We talked about you guys working nights, but I think management is not there, which is huge. I mean, I generally like the people that gravitate towards night shift in general. Um, you have to just deal with a whole lot of bullshit on days. Um, and I mean, I feel like that's the main thing, like the charge nurses management being there. It's all just almost like different culturally night to day. Um, and if I could have handled night shift physically, I definitely would have stayed on, but it just wrecked my body. So, um, I did go to days and you can adjust to those too. I mean, they both have their benefits and they definitely both have their cons. So I feel like generally night shift people are laid more laid back for some reason. Yes. I don't know why, but that's what I hear, you know, across yes. the table. Um, one more, one more question about labor and delivery. So mm -hmm. when I did my rotation as a, a nursing student, a lot of um, labor and delivery, like postpartum, antepartum, I'm forgetting the units, mm -hmm. uh, they were clashing. They didn't like, like oh. for some reason, is that something that goes on in your hospital as well? Yes. 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 It's really funny. Um, I feel like the labor and delivery nurses like call themselves the A team and the B teams like postpartum. There's a lot of, which again, I think is a lot of ego. Um, but there are different personality types. Like I do think L and D is more, it's people that gravitate towards a little bit more adrenaline. Um, it's really labor intensive too. So I think you have to be, I mean, physically able and, ready to do that. I, I also think, um, postpartum has so many incredible things that you're able, you're supporting the mom through breastfeeding, through baby bonding, through the healing process. I mean, there's a lot there too. Um, but there definitely is like, there's some weird stuff going on on the floor with, um, anti, you know, labor and delivery and postpartum for sure. Yeah. It's like the, the ER and ICU beef that we sometimes have. Totally, totally. Uh, Everyone, it, it is all ego. It's just you know they're all great. It's just really different. Just like the um the, the students or new grads that start in the ICU and they feel like they're hot shit because yeah. LE or med surge doesn't have the same skills or same patience, and you begin to drink your own Kool Aid, and that's what happens, guys, when you drink your own Kool Aid. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. I, I mean, think when it, I think when it comes down to it, I think. 
at least the nurses that I've seen, they're able to put their egos aside for like the better health of, of the patient. Yeah. Like I haven't had any patient like deteriorate or any patient issues or conflicts just because nurses, you know, wanted to, you know, have their ego rise above somebody else's, you know. So I think that we got that, like, nurses are pretty solid in that. Like, they'll put their shit aside for the better of the patient. 100%. Temporary. I do think that's true. Yeah, and temporary. I think temporary. I was just going to say, I think a lot of that also is behind the scenes. Like, it's not like you'd walk into a patient's room and know that two nurses weren't getting along. I mean, I feel like I generally have a pretty laid back personality and I work with a lot of type A nurses and I feel like they would all come. It was also all women. There was one gay guy that worked with us and really it's all women. So I feel like there's some catty stuff going on. We need a little bit more testosterone in the mix there, but they all would come to me with the drama. You know, I knew everyone's stuff because I was just, I did not want to get involved. I had no interest. Um, but there's definitely an element of that too. But again, putting all of that aside is always top priority and the patient is number one and they wouldn't know that any of this was going on. It's just, you know, in the nursing room. Yeah. So, so, so those listening, you know, yes, sometimes we have a little drama and gossip, but mm-hmm. we put everything aside and we take care of our patients, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us about your experience, your journey with the, the battle of cancer and mm-hmm. I'll leave it as an open-ended question and I'll let you take, take the ranks and however you want to tell us your story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was diagnosed at 31. Like I said, it is salivary gland cancer on the right side of my face as a result of the cancer, it spread to my facial nerve. Um, so in my surgery, they had to cut that facial nerve. So I have paralysis on the right side of my face as a result of that surgery. Um, I, you know, I work at a hospital. I started to feel pain on the right side of my jaw. Um, and I was just like, that's weird. I had just had a cavity filled. I kind of thought maybe it was infected. There was something going on. I went back to the dentist. They were in x-rays. There was nothing that they could see. Um, So I went to the doctor a total of five times before I got diagnosed. Um, And I think part of the reason that I kind of knew intuitively something was off, but I kept being told like, this is normal. They called it TMJ, which is kind of like a bucket umbrella thing for any pain in your jaw when they can't figure it out. you know, they said it's nothing, it's probably stress related to your wedding planning and everything you have going on in your life. Like I, I really felt like I was dismissed kind of, um, and as a nurse and buying into, you know, trusting my doctors, I really felt like what they were saying was true. So I'd be in appointments with them and I'd be like, okay, you're right. You're right. I'd feel a little bit better. And then the pain would come back and I was like, this is something else is wrong. You know, I got a night guard. I did all the things they told me to do for TMJ and it wasn't getting better. So it wasn't until the fifth time that I went in and they were like, you know, trying to tell me that it was all okay. Again, I was like, no, like I need to see an ENT an ear, nose and throat specialist. I like refer me out. I'm not, something's wrong. Um, And I went and saw the ENT and as soon as she like saw me and looked at it, she's like, we need a scan right away. We need to, we need to look at this. And from, from the ultrasound forward, it was like biopsy and diagnosis. And at that point it had been over six months of me really 
going in. And it's funny because I do feel like they treated me like a professional. They knew I worked at the hospital. Um, but I, I feel like being a nurse has definitely helped me and been a huge hindrance through this process because I do trust my doctors. I know the system. Um, and I kind of bought into what they were saying. And also I know the system. I know the language. I've been able to like really have more of a partnership with my oncologist and with my doctors. Um, but it really taught me just, you know, I've only been a nurse and being on the other side as a patient now for this long, I just realized how much you need to advocate for yourself. Like how much goes down without, without, if you don't really know the system, if you don't really know treatments, if you don't, I mean, there have just been a couple of situations like rolling back into surgeries or with medication where I'm like, you already gave me that drug. Just like you really can tell almost right away who the good nurses are and who the bad ones are. And probably a terrible patient too. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, but yeah, it started in my salivary gland and it spread to my chest and then it spread to my brain. Um, so I've had radiation I've done chemo. I'm now on an immunotherapy and a chemo agent, which has kept it away for over a year, which is amazing. I mean, I basically have a PhD in oncology at this point because of the amount of research I've done. Um, the drugs I am on are great. They're, it's a targeted treatment, so I really have no side effects. It's a pill I just take every day. Um, and they're doing amazing things in the cancer world. Like I do think in your lifetimes and mine, hopefully I'm still here, they're they're going to cure cancer. It's just, I think they're going towards more genomics and really targeting your DNA as opposed to generally killing everything in your body, which is what chemo is. Um, so, um, since then, I think part of, part of my mission and part of what I want to do here is really teach people about how important it is to advocate for yourself, even if you're young and even if you're generally healthy, if something is going on, like go, go get your regular annual screenings done, take your health seriously, because I think nurses tend to be caretakers and they'll do everything else for everyone before they really prioritize themselves. Um, and also, I just want to I, I want to help people that have gone through something seriously tragic um, that has changed their life feel a little bit less alone. Like, know that you are not in it alone, which I think grief really does. It makes you feel super isolated. And you know, I'm 31. I was about to get married. Um, I was planning on having kids and a pretty conventional life, and this has just completely changed that path. So it can feel like I'm doing something so different than everyone else. And it's kind of realizing, unfortunately, that a lot of people end up in this boat too. You know, I'm not, I am not the only one who has gone through something that, that has, you know, changed their life. So that's what I want to do. Um, and that's part of the reason I'm on here having this conversation with you guys is just, if anyone needs to hear this story needs to hear, me and what I've been through and where I am now, I, I want to be that for someone else. So. And thank you for sharing your story because not everybody likes to get so personal and into detail, you know, mm -hmm. about their life. And I, and I like how you mentioned advocacy. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that a lot of patients that just like you say, they don't know the system, correct? So mm -hmm. they're in and out of hospitals 
and they lose that one very important thing that I've read a book about. Uh, it's by mm -hmm. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, duh, favorite book. Love it. They lose hope. They yeah. lose that drive. They feel hopeless. They feel a loss of control because they don't know this pill, that pill. I'm going for this procedure. They're not able to, you know, we're able to kind of see the great picture of what's happening to us when we're tra transitioning. You were just in the healthcare, in the hospital, you know, and mm -hmm. yeah, that I think hope is very important. How do we hold on to that? You know, how do we become more certain? How do we become resilient to this strategy? Strategy. I'm sorry, this strategy. Strategy. That like, you know, you were expecting to get married and have kids and all of a sudden it's just a total 360 and we have to cope with it somehow. Yeah, I love that question. I love that you brought up man's search for meaning. I think um, for me, I kind of realized pretty early on that if I'm not holding on to some sort of hope, I basically should be dead. I think that the texture of your hope changes. So it's kind of like being able to be adaptive enough to shift with everything that happens. Um, and that can look really different. Um, just being able to get through one day and what that looks like. Um, I think like being very clear with my doctors about the fact that like, I believe in science. I believe in research. I think statistics are important. And I think like giving people certain prognoses or saying certain concrete things about what's going to happen with your health is also, it can be very, very detrimental to people's health. Um, and I think, you know, they've done research and found that people were told you know, you have three months to live and they end up doing an autopsy and they don't even have any cancer in their body. It's almost like a psychological thing where I feel like I'm dying. So I'm dying as opposed to, um, shifting what that looks like and, and being able to be adaptive enough to change what hope looks like is huge. I don't, I think like until the very end, having a certain amount of hope, even if it's a hope about um, the way you want to die and what that looks like or what you want, what your pain, what you want your pain to look like, like and an amount of control in your health is like one of the only ways I think to stay, stay the course. I don't, I don't know why or how I could, if I didn't have that hope. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people, well, now with like modern medicine and you could actually go on Google and do your own research, but yeah. Like a lot of our older population, like they, they see that whatever the physician says is, is final. Like the mm -hmm. physician knows more than them. They've been to school for X amount of years that whatever they say, that's how it's going to gonna end up. And yeah. like you said, you know, they did a biopsy and it turns out it's not even cancerous. It, it, it's benign. And this, this patient has committed already so much to, you know, dying to, you know, have an X amount of months to live where they, they, they get more sicker than they were coming in. Yeah. I feel like people yeah. need to, like maybe even physicians could, could take a different approach. Maybe they shouldn't be as stern. Maybe they should offer a second opinion by, by, by somebody else. But they should, I feel like physicians are, are just straight to the point and they don't offer too much background on like what they're saying. I feel like physicians have to offer a little bit more, more hope because just because someone says you have X amount to live doesn't mean you don't have more. You know, it's not just, just like a give up. Totally. I, I think um, there's a book called Radical Remission by Kelly Turner. Um, she's a researcher and has her PhD, but she's done 
um, you know, studies on thousands of different cancer patients that were told, you know, you go home and die. Like we've tried everything we can and they're alive 20 years later. Um, and it's all kind of based on other healing modalities, but I think generally speaking doctors, and I have had very serious conversations with my oncologist where I said, I do not want to know like no numbers here. That's not helpful. And I generally, like we all know how statistics work and we know there's a tail. I am young and otherwise really healthy. I don't think I fall into a lot of those categories and I don't want to be put in them. Um, but I can imagine that there are some really old school doctors that they're almost just, it's, it's like robotic thinking and that's what they want to provide is information. And that can be harmful too. Mm -hmm. I think on the other end of the spectrum, though, if patients really aren't given direct information about what's going on with their health and they're just told, here's the next treatment option, here's what you can do. If they have a couple months to live and they really want a good quality of life and they want to be with their families and they want to go home and die or whatever, go to the beach and die there, you know, they could be left until the very end, you know, in the hospital going through these terrible deaths as opposed to doing it in a much more meaningful way. So I think it's kind of like both things have to be true. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's correct. Because like working in, in the ICU, you have patients that, you know, are hanging on, on by string, multiple pressures, intubated sedation, like mm -hmm. brain damage, you know, they had a hypoxic brain injury, all that. And you know, they're not going to make it no matter how hopeful they are. So there, there no. is another spectrum. And those people, you know, aren't talked to straightforward. They're not told the condition of their mother or their father. And then yeah. people are laying in the bed and getting pressure ulcers and yeah. we're artificially keeping them alive for, for a month. It's might be even months at a time just because, you know, nobody wants to little, put a little bit of pressure on, on, on the yeah. family to make a decision because we do want to be comfortable. Like we're not sure if, if the patient like is in pain, like they, they're stated intubated. They could be in a horrendous amount of pain. Right. You know, we just don't know. So yeah, there definitely is those two spectrums like that. And it's crazy how, how far those spectrums are apart from each other. Right. Which is why like conversations about this are, it's really important now, you know, with parents, with ourselves, why advanced directives are so important. I mean, I think being able to have documented information about what you want for end of life care is really, really important. Um, and it's important for nurses to know so they can advocate for their patients too. And it's important for us to know for our families and for our loved ones and for us. My my grandma's 85. Uh-huh. She was so stubborn. She does not have a living will. Advanced directive. I told her multiple times and I gave her the scenarios of, you know, what would you want? And she's just one of those people that are just undecisive about the about the situation. Yeah. Um, so you're very self-aware of everything. You learned so much with your experience. You know mm -hmm. how when we go to the through the death process, there's stages of grieving. Um, when you were diagnosed, you heard everything that happened. Did you have like stages of maybe losing hope? Did you, you know, what was, what was your journey during that little period of time where you're just like, I'm going to get through this, you know, where, where did you find your hope when you probably got crushed like two weeks before your wedding? I think I, to be honest, I went into like a six month, really, really deep depression. I mean, I was just on the couch also at that point I was going through chemo and radiation and I was exhausted um and sick so I really went inside myself um and I think 
there was, it was after I was done with treatment where there was a period of time where, where I really just said to myself, look, if I have a short amount of time here, how do I want to spend it? Do I want it to be on the couch or do I want to enjoy whatever time I have here now? Um, and I really, it was weird. It was kind of like a whole paradigm shift that happened. It wasn't like a slow progressive thing. It was like all of a sudden a light bulb went off and I was like, oh shit. Like if this is how I'm, I, I should just die now if it's going to be on my couch. Like I actually want to do whatever I can with the time I have left. So I think that was a huge thing for me was that mentality shift, but also, um, you know, I think I still struggle with that. That's still something like there are days I wake up and I'm like, Oh my God, what is my life? Like, how did this turn into my life? I can't believe I'm here. Like, it's hard for me to believe sometimes. So I think it can be really exhausting pulling yourself up over and over and over again. So there are times where I just let myself be. And if that means binge watching Netflix for a whole day or spending three hours on TikTok, that's okay. Um, so it's kind of, again, letting both of those things be true. And, and, um, you know, that, I think that's, that's it is, um, is picking yourself back up over and over again. Is there any like hobbies you recently started? I know you're big into yoga and, and um, like mm-hmm. and, and all that. Like, how, how is that? Like, in, cause you're in California, right? So yes. yeah. yeah. So how is that? Has that helped you like through your hard times? For sure. For sure. I mean, I've done, I'm a, I think in general, I'm a pretty open person and I've done everything. I mean, I've seen shamans, I've done psilocybin, I've done, um, everything, qigong, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, breathing. I mean, I I'm really open to everything. So I think it's not like I have any new hobbies. I definitely meditate. I like to move my body. Um, but it's, um, I don't know that there's any, my husband and I have a camper van. Um, and so going and being outside, being in nature, huge for me, like I said, the mountains really do it for me. Um, painting a little bit being with my dog and friends friends and family it's really it yeah and that's what i was going to ask next but you already kind of answered it is have you ever tried any integrative medicine while mm-hmm. you were on chemo and the, you know the, um, the orthodox medicines mm-hmm. have you found anything that was super useful for you yeah i mean i i think the psilocybin that i did with the shaman was pretty big they are doing research right now. They're in clinical trials, you know, at Johns Hopkins and a few other hospitals where they're doing psilocybin trials with, um, with vets and with, you know, people with serious anxiety disorder, mood disorders, depression, um, and cancer patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw that research. I read how to change your mind by Michael Pollan, which was, have you guys read that? No. I heard. It's great. It's an incredible book. It's, um, definitely got me on the mushroom train Mm -hmm. but they um you know they it was not like recreational use of mushrooms it was like putting on a blindfold laying down on a couch and being with you know a psychologist who really worked me through the whole process I just I've really wanted to feel like there's no stone unturned like I've explored the darkest parts of my psyche and myself and um 
And it did make me feel better about death. And it did make me feel better about being alive. It was pretty powerful. Um, and I think, you know, therapy is also huge groups getting connected with other young people who have cancer. Um, breath work has been huge for going into the hospital and kind of like grounding myself, setting up a bubble, um, oncology units are heavy places to be. So being able to like take care of myself when I'm in the hospital and put up enough boundaries, that's another big thing. Um, but yeah, and Qigong energy work, kind of realizing how much gets stuck in our bodies, not to sound too California, but it's another, another big thing for me. Um, I've really enjoyed it all. Um, so with like the psilocybin and the shaman, did you do that like in California or did you have to travel like somewhere outside of California or outside the US? I'm pretty curious because like I have done done them in the past and they're very like like mind opening and it just like triggers different parts of your brain that you know that haven't been activated, you know, mm -hmm. without without that medication. So I was just curious on that. Yeah, so they're technically still calling it like underground. There's a whole community, it's MAPS. I forget what it actually stands for, M-A-P-S. Um but it's a group of psychologists and therapists that are offering integration therapy with the psilocybin. They, a lot of them are in San Francisco, um, Berkeley area, but you can look up your area, like in Illinois or Chicago or certain, you know, they're everywhere. Um, it's technically not legal yet. I think ketamine was actually just legalized in Oakland, California, but, um, it's technically not legal. So it's like underground. There's a lot of like hush hush, but they're all listed on a website. So I just literally contacted them. Um, and this woman is like a psychologist, a shaman. She was like this 80 year old wise woman with long gray hair who has been doing this for years and years and years. I was like, yes, I want you. <laughs> yeah. Like my opinion with, with like things like that, like psilocybin and like, like ketamine, like we know we have certain medications and drugs that, help with things that psilocybin and ketamine are supposed to help with. But like you said, you said it's the six, like the spectrum. So you know how you have the bell curve. Not everybody fits that middle portion of the bell curve on. Just because this medication helped so much people doesn't mean it's going to help all the people. No. Like why no. don't we allow, you know, certain drugs to be, to be given to people that, you know, don't fit the general census of who the modern medication helps. Yeah. Why make it illegal? Yeah. Just like take that away from people. Well, and I feel like with microdosing too, they're finding, I mean, if you're going to be on an antidepressant, why not try something else too? I mean, I think that, I think this is a whole world that's just opening up to people, which is why it's so amazing that like research institutes are doing clinical trials on this. And it's, you know, it's being brought back into the mainstream because it was it's been super taboo. And I think people who have done it recreationally have had these experiences and that's not my, with microdosing, you know, that's with normal dosing, um, that are transformative, or at least on some level, they leave this lasting memory of the things that they felt on this drug. Um, and I think if it's done in the right way, um, it can be extremely powerful. And I think bad trips happen because, of mentality going in too, you know, if it's done in an environment where it is really controlled, the dosing is controlled. Um, you don't even have to have those, those experiences at all. Um, so yeah, 
would yeah, it would be interesting seeing microdosing or um, psilocybin being given to even, for example, patients that are struggling with um, alcoholism because oh, yeah. those patients, you know, they probably have underlying depression or anxiety. Yeah. And I feel like they're not finding meaning in life, right? There's no meaning in their life. They're just working. They're coming home. They have these issues. They don't know how to de-stress themselves emotionally. And they just love to kind of chase with a little bit of liquor to kind of just down stimulate them. And I feel like microdosing or something, it would, it would allow those, I don't know, those areas in your life to just open up or third eye, whatever you want to call yeah. it, in, you know, yeah. in this case. Yes. No, exactly. I think it's like kind of counterintuitive to think about using drugs to help with people with drug addictions or alcohol addictions, but it's not used in the same way. You know, it's serving such a different purpose. It's helping like, again, like you're saying, the underlying issues, like the mental health issues, depression, anxiety, all the, all the reasons we use drugs in general to escape are, you know, are the major issue. It's not the actually drug itself that you're using. So yes, yeah. I think it's going to be really cool to see what happens with this. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Cause I did like, like the, why these like psychedelics and like acid and, and like mushrooms get like these bad rep because I was reading like research. Well, it wasn't really research. It was just like a, kind of like, like a story. Uh, that's like built on facts that when like acid first got in introduced to like the US and like the government. So how the government was, was testing the effects of acid on people was they were literally dopey college students without without telling them. Wow. And that's why it, be, it became legal because if you give somebody, you know, like a psychedelic without them, without them knowing, they literally think they might be going crazy. Oh my God. And Imagine being out on the street and, and just someone doses you with acid, you're just like, holy shit, what's going on? <laughs> Like, you know, or like, or like, yo, you're just, you're trying to study and you, someone just drops acid in your, in your, in your coffee. Now the pages and like the letters are coming out of the book and trying to fucking eat you. Like imagine that shit. Uh, fucking yes. 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 I mean, I think again, that's why there's all these myths and there's a lot of stigma associated with these drugs is because they haven't been used in like a medically controlled way. Um, and that's very different than yes, drugging people without them knowing. In general, I think um, we get a negative stigma with everything that we see on TV or, you know, like marijuana, we think of the person that's oh. couch locked and he's wasting his life away watching, you know, Netflix and eating Lay's chips. And that's just the stigma that we developed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that'll happen if you smoke like three blunts, like, yeah, you're going to be almost, <laughs> yeah. almost comatose. People that actually need it for pain, they, they smoke a little bit and that's all they need, you know? Yeah. You don't got to get completely zonked off, off marijuana. You're saying with alcohol, you can have like an occasional beer and just like chill. You don't got to get completely wasted, you know? It's everything in moderation yeah. and on spectrum in my mind, 100%. But marijuana and CBD have been like game changers through chemo and through everything that I've been going through way more than, you know, Zofran and Compagene and all the drugs that they give you. I feel like it was the one thing that gave me an appetite that made me feel like lighter and better emotionally. And it wasn't like I was smoking a blunt. It was like, you know, taking a little tincture or having one hit. It was, and it was perfect. I think the stigma is a problem and every, you know, it can be the same with food, with anything. It just moderation. Yeah, I don't know about in California, but in Illinois, it's still really hard to get a marijuana card. Like I tried to get one for my doctor, you know, mm -hmm. like after after the, after the procedure because like I couldn't sleep. Like it was, it took me it took me forever to fall asleep. But but like when I would do recreationally, like I would be able to fall asleep. 
But yep. when I brought him the stuff, I tried to convince him. I brought him all the facts. You know, I, I like to do my research. He basically said he wasn't sure on, on how it's going to affect his license. And so he said no to marijuana card, but he prescribed me trazodone. And then oh I took, he told me take one pill. And if it's, if it's too much, take half. I took half the first time, fucking slept like 10 hours. Didn't know where the fuck I was, dude. <laughs> like, I was like, holy shit. Like this could have been, been literally solved by like, like this is like a little bit of marijuana. And now like I wasted half my day and I, now I'm confused. You know, I'm lethargic. Like not lethargic, but I'm just like a little bit delirious on where I'm at. Yeah. There's like a cloud over you for the whole day. Just like, like what the hell's going on? And I, I, I hate those drugs. I hate those drugs. I hate painkillers. I mean, I've had three surgeries now and I am off them immediately. I don't, I hate the way they make me feel mentally. Um, obviously I'm in San Francisco. So, I mean, I have the store right down the street that I go to and it, I'm at a research facility that encourages it. I mean, they pay for the drugs, but it's also, I think a huge issue state by state with physicians and licensing. I think they are scared of what's going to happen. I mean, it's crazy. My sister lives in Brooklyn, New York, and it's not legal there, which is like, it blows my mind. I'm like, how? Uh, yeah, we, I guess we're in a bubble here in San Francisco too, but yeah, it is. It's sad that doctors are still viewing it the way they are. Yeah. Maybe it'll change over time. Cause my, my position was, he's an, he's an older guy. So maybe mm-hmm. he has that stigma associated, like, you know, this guy's just trying to get high real quick, you know? And then, then he's told me like, you know, why don't you just get it recreationally? I'm going to say, because I, like, I want it for medical purposes. Like, you know, like right. I've, I've never right. tried medical, medical marijuana. So I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's any different. I don't know what, I know yeah. it's, it costs less, but that wasn't my, my objective just to pay less. Right. You know? right. But that's just how it is. So now um, I'm just not, and I'm not going to take any kind of medication. Like screw that. Yeah. No point. Yeah. Trazodone is some gnarly stuff. Yeah. I was going to transition from the uh, the drug talk to um, yeah. Yeah. Tai Chi or the Chi Chong. I forgot what the word was. Uh huh. Can you so can you talk? Can you, I'm very curious. And you said blocking energy. Yeah. And we did a podcast that was just released about um, alternative medicine, and yeah. I think the Chinese believe in the is it the Meridians or the Meridians, right? So the there's, Meridians. there's these energies that are flowing through us, and it gets blocked, and it causes mm-hmm. disease. I believe, correct? Yep, exactly. You nailed it. I think, yeah, Chinese medicine or Eastern medicine, it's, it's actually, Qigong is a sister of like Tai Chi, which is a a similar kind of energy movement, but they are generally speaking, the philosophy is we have meridians. They all kind of like line up with our chakras too. Um, And they call any disease, they don't label it. There's no diagnoses, cancer or heart disease or all of it is stuck energy, basically. So what what they're doing with acupuncture, what they're doing with Tai Chi, Qigong, um, is trying to move that energy. Um, so a lot of the movements are really, it's kind of like a mental and physical thing, which is why it's part, you know, mindfulness and meditation is like more visualizing that energy moving. Um, so if there's pain in a particular area, there are movements that you do to kind of repetitively change that energy to move it. Um, and it has nothing to do with physical touch. It's like all in the way that you're moving. Um, and I have found that so beneficial. Um, I'm really, I, I'm really visualizations are really, really good for me. And a lot of it is kind of visualizing, um, 
So I've gotten a lot of benefit out of that with treatment, you know, side effects, but also just in, you know, trying to heal myself in general, trying to, it's been huge. huge. Yeah. Like it, like it's crazy. Like, like people don't, don't understand, or they, they also think it's like taboo, like, Oh, like yoga meditation, like what are you trying to be spiritual or, or something? You know, it's like, it, it goes like a far away, like, like for yoga, you know, it's, it's mental and physical for me. Yoga is, is more physical. Like, you, you know, you're stretching and becoming more, more flexible, but then like, like meditation, that's all like, that's like you're building mental strength, mental power yeah. through, through, through meditation, just because in, especially in current society, you are never by yourself and there's never silence anywhere. Mm-hmm. And even when you're meditating, you don't really have silence internally. Like you still, you try to you make it, thoughts. yeah, you chose try to make it as quiet as possible. So you could hear like maybe just, just one thought, one voice. Because a lot of times you don't always hear like one thought, one voice in our head. It's always like multiple things coming at us. So meditation actually allows us to just like settle, settle down, settle in and kind of listen to like our inner voice. Listen to the, the, the strongest like voice in our, in our head. And that's usually like you from like your heart for the most part. And it's crazy how, how far that goes. Like it makes, makes you calmer, makes you smarter, makes you more intelligent and just makes you a, a better person. Because when you get put into a stressful situation, you're able to kind of silence all those thoughts in, in your head and be able to decide or, or make a decision on, on, on what to do, especially like in nursing, you have a critical patient. Sometimes we get overwhelmed on everything that's going on. And if you practice meditation and you practice silencing all those voices in your head, you could silence everybody else around you in the stressful situation. And you're able to think more clearly and you're able to yeah. get out of life what you, what you really want instead of whatever social media, media tells you to do. Yeah. And I also think the other thing that I'll add is, you know, you have more control over what thoughts in your head you actually want to hold on to and what thoughts you want to let go because of that awareness, you know? So if there is like a negative thought and you can go into that that cyclical thinking and go down that path, I'm able to stop myself a lot quicker and be like, whoa, 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 where are you going? Whereas before it would just be a place that I'd go and, you know, a day in, I'd be like, what the hell, where am I? um the awareness is huge and uh, also i have the whoop band so I'm, i kind of like put an app on to kind of check my heart rate and the activity itself of meditation uh-huh. i can and i understand how great my session was based on what was my resting heart rate if i was yeah. if i was in the 50s i know i had a good session if i was in the 60s 67 let's just say i know that there's i have a little bit of anxiety i'm a little bit anxious or Maybe I didn't get enough sleep and I know that's affecting me. It's, it's crazy how you can dial in when you kind of body scan yourself, when you're that aware, you, you're able to observe yourself as an object almost. Yeah, they have something called heart math, um, which actually is supposed to measure um, like delta waves and like it's actually a way, which is similar to your heart monitor, but it's just a way of tracking how deep into your meditation you actually get. Um, I think that is, it's also kind of, I, I remember reading somewhere here and, you know, you don't have a good or bad meditation session. If it is full of thoughts, you never quieted your mind. You never got to that place where it just got quiet for a minute. It's because you needed it. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a good session. Um, and I, and I, I love that you mentioned that because that means I'm judging my, my session instead of just accepting it for what it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you can look at it as, as like a workout. Like, you know, there's those days where you don't feel like going to the gym, but you go anywhere and, you know, you don't do like your full potential, full 100%. But 
But just because you did 65% or 55%, like you feel better just because you went to the gym already. Motion, you know? Exactly. Even putting on the gym clothes, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. Since we're here in Illinois and you're in California, how was like the lockdown over there due to the virus? Um, well, it's funny how masks have turned into such a political thing. Um, Everything's political. I swear. Everything is. It's true. Um, overall, um, again, like I said, nature is everything. So I think people are all picking up on the fact that like green therapy is real. Being outside calms everything. Gyms and everything have been closed. So people are all running and outside more. Um, no gyms are open like at all? No gyms are open. No, we're still in like phase one because California's cases have, you know, skyrocketed mainly in LA and um, Southern California. But Gavin Newsom, our governor has been super strict about how we open up. So we're still in it, like very in it. Um, and people are taking it really seriously in the Bay Area. No one's outside. People are all riding bikes and running with masks on. I mean, it's, um, it's good. I mean, it makes me feel safe too, especially because I am compromised. Um, I am at a higher risk if I get sick. So I am very aware of like what people are doing and how, how seriously they're taking it. So I feel like we're appropriately opening up at this point, but things are still closed are restaurants still closed like is it still curbside or can you even do outdoor they are doing outdoor dining some outdoor dining yeah but everything's outside nothing inside is open okay yeah here for here in illinois and midwest it's different because restaurants are opened you can walk in but you got to walk in with a mask they do the Mm -hmm. social distancing and you have you have to wear a mask in your table but once you leave the table you gotta put your mask back on totally that's new york too yeah yeah yeah. And the gyms here are open, but you got to walk in with your mask. You could, you could take it off. Once you there. Some people wear, some people don't. But yeah, like, like it's like partially open. Like if you're willing to wear a mask, you could basically go, go anywhere you want for the, for the most part. Like well, we were at the museum. Museum, uh, all we had to do was, 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 was uh, wear a mask. And you had a social distance in line. But the lines weren't big because no one's really going to the museum now, especially who we after the riots yeah, too. We so it was empty. We had to home them to ourselves. So right. it was, but yeah, but here it's. I'm not sure what, what phase we're in. I feel like they give us one phase, one month, and then they switch it up, uh, and then they do different phases. So I don't even know what number this is, but we're like we're partially open. Like businesses are still able to open um, under like as long as you wear a mask and sanitize properly. So it's it's not horrible. It's better than it used to be because before we were a complete shutdown, and I was freaking out. And schools are going to be completely online. For us. Are they in Chicago at least? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. San Francisco. I think they're doing it differently by counties, but. San Francisco, I think, is mainly online or at least partial. Um, yeah, I think it is It is way more dead in the city still. It is not open up. I drove down San Francisco, downtown San Francisco, and it's like a ghost town. I mean, there is no one out. Um, you know if California is going to do mail-in voting? I know some states are pushing for it. but Yes, I know. I heard about that. I don't I don't know. I, I would assume so. I mean, I... I have a, I already filled everything out. I'm done. So I'm not worried about it, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I actually haven't even looked up. I know that's a huge thing. Trump just made another announcement yesterday. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Cause I know in one state that they found like 500,000, like fraudulent, um, like, yeah. like votes and like that were mailed in like dogs were, were like dogs names were put on that people that are like over age of 120, like it was like whatever <laughs> I'm not sure what news channel I was watching, but it was like it was on YouTube. Like, yeah, like, like it could be a complete shit show. You know, like, there's like, like there's always two spectrums, of, of course. We 
the keys to get it like right in right in the middle. There's always gonna be fraud, but there is there's voter fraud now too, even with like even without mail in mail in voting. So we'll just see what happens. I have no idea. I don't know what to expect. I personally don't think it's a good idea. I feel like people could still vote. Like when I was in a DMV trying to get my license, um, mm-hmm. like a lot of people are saying that if, if you're older, like you shouldn't come out. But if you're in a DMV and you're above 60, you just you just cut everybody in line. Like, you know, they they have those benefits for senior citizens. Right, right. For, for the voting office. I mean, they still do have the risk of, of catching it, you know, but maybe they could allow mail-in voting if you're over a certain age. I don't know. I, I think there. I think the issue is that they're worried about everything getting getting inundated, mm-hmm. and the post office literally not being able to get everything out, yeah. um, which would be in Trump's favor. Um, so, I I'm not exactly sure what's happening with California, but you know we're a blue state, so I I would assume they're gonna push for whatever is gonna get the most votes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I say with Illinois. Yeah. 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 Before we end things off, I was going to ask a question, and that is to somebody that's maybe in your shoes, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe will be in your shoes in the near future. You never know, correct? With the way life goes, it is mm-hmm. full of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. How do you empower yourself mm-hmm. for a situation, a crisis, a disaster, whatever the case might be? Mm-hmm. Or how do you advocate for yourself? Mm-hmm. Um. I think it kind of goes back to like the man search for meaning thing, the hope thing we talked about. Um, Humans are just like incredibly adaptive. I think that's been the most interesting thing to see with myself is just how much I can kind of reframe things in my head um, and how much self-talk I can do that ends up being really beneficial for me. Um, But I think it's really shifting that hope. I think resiliency is all about all about framing, all about how we see ourselves in the world. Um, and again, what hope means for you. I think staying in your lane is really important. Comparison is like the root of all evil in my mind. <laughs> um, and just realizing that we do really have this like one very short life and continuing to ask yourself, like, what does it mean to live fully for me? And that could look totally different for someone else. Um, but, um, that's huge. I think my family, my husband, my friends, um, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have them. I think your social network and leaning on people, being able to ask for help, another very hard thing for nurses. Um, I think, um, also pulling in, you know, it's Western medicine and it's Eastern medicine. It is not one thing. We are holistic people. So being able to apply everything you can to whatever you're going through, physical or psychological or COVID, all of it, um, it's multifaceted like we are. So I think it's, it's a combination of all of those things. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for being here with us. Thank you for taking time out of your day to talk with us um anything else you want to touch upon matthew uh where can we find you or is there anything you want to promote i know you were working on potentially working as a coach or having that out correct yeah i want to start um like i said helping people in any way that i can it's more just getting myself out there and having conversations with people to begin with but i am putting together a website i have the domain it's my name Lindsay ann with an e kimmel Um, and I'm going to get that launched. It's almost done. Um, 
that's the main place that you can find me. So I'll have all my information on there. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Lindsay, thank you for being with us. This is so fun. I'm so glad we made it happen. Thank yep. you. Yep. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Take care.